So history records that Blücher was on his way to help Wellington at the Battle of Waterloo. This Napoleon chap thought he would take over the whole world and somebody needed to stop him. So Blücher's on the move to help Wellington at Waterloo to make it to Waterloo on time for the battle. And he's pushing his troops hard. I mean, really super hard because he, he, he wants to get there to make sure that Wellington has the help that he needs. And his troops are saying, it's not possible. It, it, it cannot be done. And he responds back, but it must be done. Do you understand? It must be done. I have promised to be there. Do you hear me? You would not have me break my word, would you? And story tell, history tells us he did make it in time to help Wellington and at the Battle of Waterloo defeated Napoleon. We praise such faithfulness. Someone who gives us a promise and said they'll keep it. We praise, especially a human being. As we heard in the Advent reading, the value of a promise is based on the person who gives the promise. So we appreciate faithfulness like that. I'll, I'll be there. You want me to break my word? And how much more shall the God Almighty who has made very great and precious promises to us, how much more will he keep them? If we, if we praise some human being for keeping his promise because we think that's a great thing, it is. But you and I have been around human beings who don't keep their promises. So the value of a promise is wrapped up in the person who gives it. The Lord Almighty has given us great and precious promises. And it's he who has given them to us. When a person makes a promise, they, they reach out and to an unpredictable future, as Lewis Smead says, and makes one thing predictable. They will be there even when it costs more than their life to do so. When a person makes a promise, Smead says, he stretches himself out into circumstances that no one can control and controls at least one thing. He will be there no matter what the circumstances turn out to be. With one simple word of promise, a person creates an island of certainty in a sea of uncertainty. God has made us very great and precious promises. He's fulfilled some of them, and there are yet still some to come. But we want to look to the God who has made the promise, and what was the promise that he made to us? That's what Paul wants to talk about today in Romans 15. He's going to show to us that Jesus Christ came to confirm the promises of God, to make them valid, to bring them into completion, fulfillment, revealing that God's intention from the beginning was to bless all nations. That was his intention from the very beginning, was to bless all nations. Now, chapter 15 of Romans doesn't stand in isolation. Obviously, it's surrounded by a context. Chapter 14 deals with weak Christians or those who are immature in the faith and strong Christians, those who are more mature in their faith, and how they're supposed to interact. See, the weak Christian's not supposed to say to the strong Christian, why are you doing this? And the strong Christian's not to say to the weak Christian, why are you not doing this? But to leave room for conscience, as each individual has, that they will stand before God. So how do the weak and the strong interact within the church? We know that throughout the history of the church, there are always going to be immature Christians and mature Christians because none of us are mature when we first start. We're immature and we're growing in our faith. And none of us have arrived. We see the ideal we're shooting for. We're not there yet. We're growing in our faith. So there's always going to be weak and strong Christians in the church. And we need to know, we need to know how to deal with each other 
how to get along with each other, not to look down on each other or hold each other in contempt because we view things differently, strong and weak Christians. We don't want to violate another's conscience for each Christian stands or falls before God as an individual. They have to answer to God for their conscience. What we're going to see is that Christ came. That's the first part of chapter 15. 14 is dealing with weakened and strong Christians, but chapter 15 goes into to Christ as an example. He's an example, and it comes off and it starts off with that. He came not to serve himself, but to serve others and to fulfill what God has asked for the Messiah to do. Jews and Gentiles in the church are to serve each other. They're not to lord over each other or say, I'm better than you. They're to get along in the church. That's chapter 14. So Jesus is the example of what it means to get along what God intended. So that starts off with verse number eight of chapter 15. We're just going to go to 9a. So we're going to leave the the quotations of the Old Testament to the second section. So look at verse number eight. For I tell you that Christ became a servant. Again, remember I said he came not to serve himself, but to serve others. For I tell you that Christ became a servant to the circumcised, that's the Jews. Why? To show God's truthfulness in order to confirm the promises, to make valid, to bring them into to completion, to fulfill them, to confirm the promises given to the patriarch, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And in order that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. So he came as a servant to serve the Jewish people, to give us an example And as he was serving the Jewish people, he confirmed the promises of God about the Messiah that was to come. So confirming his promise to Abraham, God sent his son who was born a Jew. He came from the Jewish people. His ethnicity is Jewish. He is a Jewish Messiah. Galatians 4, Paul says, but when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son born of a woman, born under the law, that just says that he's a Jew, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. So when the Messiah came into the world, he came primarily to serve the Jewish people. Did he interact with Gentiles? Yes, on occasions he did, but primarily he went to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. As Matthew 15 says, Jesus answered, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. He came as a servant to Israel, to serve Israel. He came as a Jew, James Dunn wrote, Paul's whole point is that Christ became servant of the circumcised, not with a view to their salvation alone, but to confirm both phases of God's saving purpose to the Jew first, but also to the Gentile. So if God has accepted Jew and Gentile, then we ought to accept one another in the church as well. That's Paul's argument here, basically. So in serving the Jews, Jesus fulfilled, that means he confirmed, he established, he made good one's word, proved the promises reliable, all these ways of saying the same thing. The promises made to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. See, that's great. But what was the promise made to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob? What was it that was the promise that was made to them? In Genesis 22, and then Paul picks up it in Galatians 3, we are told exactly what the promise was. He's speaking to Abraham. In Genesis 22, and in your offspring, which is not plural, singular, and in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. So what was God's promise? 
God's promise was simply this, that all the nations of the earth will be blessed in Jesus Christ. Not just the Jews, but the Jews and the Gentiles together. If God has accepted both, we need to accept both in the church as well, is what Paul is trying to say. Paul picks up on this verse in Galatians 3. Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say, and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring, who is Christ. So we know exactly who this promised offspring was. That was the Messiah who was to come into the world, coming through the Jewish race, but coming for the entire world. He has come to redeem the nations, not just the Jewish people, the nations. Robert Munn said, God's great redemptive plan was that through his son, born a Jew as to his human nature, he might reach out in reconciling love to those of every nation under the sun. Do you realize it was God's intention from the very beginning to, to bless all nations? To all nations, even America, to bless all nations. And here, Paul is saying simply, you have to understand that the Gentiles were included in that promise to Israel. It wasn't just to the Jews, it's to the Jews and the Gentiles. Acts chapter three, you are the sons of the prophets and of the covenant that God made with your fathers, saying to Abraham, and in your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. So Jesus came as a servant to the Jewish people through the Jews to be a blessing to all the nations, to show God's truthfulness visible, verifiable reality demonstrated by facts, actual events, proven character. It's exactly what he proved. God keeps his promises. When God makes a promise, he keeps his promises. Yes, do they delay sometimes? Absolutely. But we have hope. That is a confident expectation that God will fulfill every one of his promises to us. Some we're waiting for. Some he's already fulfilled. And now among the Gentiles, you and me, unless you're of the Jewish descent, us Gentiles, the vessels of wrath have now become the vessels of mercy because it was God's intention all along to bless all of the nations, not just the Jewish people, all nations in Christ. Romans chapter nine, Paul says this, what if God desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction? in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory. Even us whom he has called, that's the Jews, and not only from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles, us Gentiles. As indeed he says in Hosea, those who were not my people, I will call my people. And her who was not beloved, I will call beloved. And in the very place where it was said to them, you are not my people, there they would be called sons of the living God. It was God's intention from the beginning to bless all nations in Christ. That he would be a blessing to everyone in this world. And because of these promises, Paul seeks the unity of Jewish and Gentile believers in the church because God's intention was to bless both Jews and Gentiles. So let's treat each other well in the church is what he's trying to say. Let's not think that one's better than the other or one's inferior or that I'm smarter than you or I'm better than you, I'm more. No, if God has accepted all, we have to accept all as well. So if it was God's intent all along to bless the nations in Christ and have one people of God through Christ, we must embrace and accept Jew and Gentile in the body of Christ and show no contempt for either other. So what does he do? 
He wants to show them this is what has been told all along from the very beginning. He uses four Old Testament passages to prove his point. So he launches into four Old Testament passages covering all three major divisions of the Old Testament, the law, the prophets, and the writings or the Psalms. He covers them all with these three, basically saying all of the Old Testament points to this. So look at verse 9b and we'll read through all of these prophecies, all of these spoken word in the Old Testament and we'll comment on them. Notice there is a trans, uh, it's it's building upon each, each other. Each one builds upon the next one. Verse 9b, as it is written, which is simply just a cue to us, this is from the Old Testament, as it is written, therefore I will praise you among the Gentiles and sing to your name. And again, it is said, rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people. And again, praise the Lord, all you Gentiles, and let all the peoples extol him. And again, 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 I mean, it's just, he's building one upon another. And again, Isaiah says, the root of Jesse will come, even he who arises to rule the Gentiles, in him will the Gentiles hope. So he pulls four Old Testament passages and builds on it. Notice it built on each other. So the Old Testament passages were to show one thing. It was God's intent all along to bless the nations, not just the Jewish people. That's the purpose of this. It started off with the first one, Psalm 1849, which which you're not going to read, but you can go back and look at it later. It was written by David. So notice what it says. Therefore, I, David is speaking, I will praise you among the Gentiles. So here we have a Jew that's going out in the midst of the Gentiles and confessing God and thanking God in the midst of the Gentiles so they can hear it. That was the intent God had all along was that the Israel was to go out to the nations and tell them about him. And isn't that really what he's asked us to do? We go out among the unbelievers and we confess God and we thank God and we talk about God in the midst of unbelievers. So that's the first phase. The Jew speaking in the midst of the Gentiles, among the Gentiles. Israel was to be the instrument through whom God's redemptive work would extend to the Gentiles. It was always that way. They were not to become their own little entity. They were to go out to the nations and confess and thank God for what he has done to Israel so that the nations would know him as well. That was his purpose. The salvation of the nations was in God's mind all along. As a matter of fact, when John, when, in John, when Jesus is talking about being the good shepherd, this is what he says, John 10. I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me. Just as the father knows me and I know the father and I lay down my life for the sheep. And I have other sheep that are not of this fold. They're not of the Jewish fold. I must bring them also. And they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock and one shepherd. See, it was God's intent all along to bless the nations. But the Jews forgot and they held it to themselves. Which is what we kind of do sometimes, don't we? We kind of just hold it to ourselves. We we come on Sundays and we have a great time worshiping together. But we kind of, when we're out in the midst of the unbelievers, we're not thanking and confessing and praising God. As the psalm says here, verse 10 Verse 10 comes at the end of the song of Moses, the end of Moses' life. And the song deals with a lot of blessings to Israel, but it also deals with a lot of judgment on the nations. But just this one little section, this last line of the uh, song of Moses, rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people. So he pulls out that one phrase. So the Holy Spirit, through Paul, adds a greater understanding here to this. 
that Moses spoke about judgment, but Paul emphasized rejoicing with the Jews. So you see first, the Jew goes out among the Gentiles and praises and thanks God. Now the next one was it say, rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people. So now the Jew and the Gentiles are together rejoicing God because we've gone out and we've told them about Jesus and now together we're rejoicing and praising God. So first it goes, Jew among the Gentiles and now we see that the Gentiles rejoice with the Jews together. First among, then with. And then verse 11 takes it to the next step. So first it was Jew among the Gentiles and it was Jew and Gentile together. And verse 11, all nations together praise the Lord. So we're talking about a universal praise of all nations here. So you see that as we're moving along here, it keeps getting bigger and bigger. So Paul is emphasizing the inclusion of the Gentiles within the promises made to Israel. Yes, the covenant was made with Israel. I understand that. But it includes us. We're part of that covenant too in Christ. So Jesus, the anointed king, welcomes both Jews and Gentiles who believe. So the progress is this. The Jew among the Gentiles, the Jew and the Gentile together praising God, then all the nations praising God, and the best example of all the nations praising God is the millennial kingdom. That's why Isaiah's quote is the last, because it speaks of the universality of praising God in the millennial kingdom. It comes from Isaiah chapter 11, verse 10. It's a prophecy of the millennial kingdom. Isaiah describes Jews and Gentiles together in the millennial kingdom where peace and joy reign. Example of universal praise. So you see the progression as it goes on? We go out among the unbelievers. We proclaim God's name. They get saved and we rejoice together and pretty soon we take it to all the nations and all the nations are rejoicing together. And when the kingdom comes, it'll be a universal peace and joy on the whole earth. That's his idea. For the hope of all nations is found when Christ reigns over us all. So to dispel the prejudice of Christian Jews to Christian Gentiles in the Roman church, Paul uses their own scripture to show God's intention from the very beginning was to bless all the nations, not just the Jews, not just the Jews. Do you know he's here to bless the nations, not just us? I mean, he's here to bless the nations. He's gonna bless us, yes, but it's not just us he wants to bless. He wants to bless the nations as well on top of that. So the Jewish Christians were to have no grudge against the Gentile Christians because their very existence was to reach the Gentiles. That's what they were put here for, to praise God among the Gentiles. And the Gentile Christians were to have no grudge against the Jewish Christians because it was through the Jews that God brought, that God brought salvation. How do you get along in the church when you don't see things the same? John 4, Jesus speaking, you worship what you do not know. We worship what we know for salvation is from the Jews. So God sends his son into the Jewish ethnicity and brings him here, not just for the Jews, but for us too, for the nations. So that all who will believe on him will have peace and joy and overbound in hope. That's exactly what verse 13 says. It's a prayer wish from all of this. This one comes in verse number 13. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing. So in the process of being faithful, faithfully believing God's word, we're gonna be filled with joy and peace so that by the power of the Holy Spirit, you may abound in hope. Hope is wrapped up here. Really, what does a promise do for us? Promise gives us hope, doesn't it? Promise gives us hope that a that someone is going to do something that they told us they're going to do. And we have a confident expectation, if we trust that person, that they're going to do exactly what they said they're going to do. 
See, a promise establishes a hope in us. See, God is the source of that hope in us. And he gives hope to all who will believe the, cons- the confident expectation that things are going to be better someday. We don't have that. And it's diminishing in the world today, hope. Men's hearts are failing for lack of hope in this world. They don't rejoice. So God is the one who gives joy and peace. And our responsibility, according to Paul, is to continue to trust him. Even when we don't see the promise coming into effect, we trust him because we know his word is true and he always keeps his promises. So we trust him and that trust gives us a hope, confident expectation that things are gonna get better someday. I think, I don't, it's a rhetorical question. Are things bad today? Yes. Are they gonna get worse? Uh, yes. Will they be better someday? Yes. That's our hope. That's our hope. When he comes back and makes all things right, that is our hope. He will give us that peace, that shalom, that harmony, what the world lacks today. This joy and peace given by God results in hope overflowing in the life of the believer. It abounds, it flows over. In other words, you're spilling out hope wherever you go. My cats are kind of messy sometimes. They like to, I don't know, cats are just weird. Anything on the counter they want to knock off or anything on the, they just want to knock it on the ground. They cause all kinds of mess. And then my dogs bring water in the house all the time with the snow all over their footprints. They just bring all this water. They they overflow with a mess. You overflow with hope. Everywhere you go, you overflow with hope. Because we have a hope because of the one who has made the promise that we have the confident expectation he's going to keep his promises. This joy and peace given by God results in this hope. Colossians 1 says, To them God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory, the confident expectation of a better tomorrow. A better tomorrow. And all of these springs from the promise of God, that promise that he made to the patriarchs was that Jew and Gentile alike can praise God and honor him and serve him and worship him. Together, William Barclay wrote, the Christian hope is the hope which has seen everything and endured everything and has still not despaired because it believes in God. The Christian hope is not hope in the human spirit, in human goodness, in human endurance, in human achievement. The Christian hope is hope in the power of God. We have the confident expectation that God is going to keep his promises. And the promise, one of them was that the blessings of the Christ are to go to all the nations, not just the Jews, or in our case, not just the church, to all the nations. So in the presence of such joy, there would be no room for quarrels within the Roman church. There's no reason to quarrel. Why are you doing this? Why are you not doing this? There's, there's no reason to quarrel. If God accepted Jews and Gentiles by faith, they can live in harmony and unity with each other. That's what Paul is trying to say is, listen, you got to get along. You may not see things the same right now, but you got to understand God's blessing is for all the nations, both Jews and Gentiles. So learn to get along with each other. Paul Actemeyer wrote, these verses in the Romans announce that the one who comes is faithful as he is to Israel and merciful as he is to the Gentiles. And therefore we may greet his coming with joy. He comes to restore unity to the broken peoples on the earth and brings hope. The confident expectation that things are going to get better someday. 
but hope is disappearing among Americans. We don't have hope anymore as Americans. There's no peace in the, in the nation's soul. There, there's no shalom in our hearts. And Americans don't know where to find it. They don't know where to get this, this shalom, this, this state of rejoicing in their heart. So since they don't know where to find it, they just check out. It's better than suffering is what they say. If a person is an unbeliever, death is not better than suffering because at death, it seals your eternity. How do I know that we've lost hope in America? The suicide rate in America is as high as it was since 1941. It's in the time of World War II. It's grown steadily over the last 18 years, according to USA Today, which is definitely a right-wing organization. You'll catch that later, right? USA Today, okay. Over the last 18 years, the suicide rate has been climbing in America. It's reached its highest point since 1941. Suicide rate per 100,000 people in 2022 was 14.3. It was only higher in 1941 with 15%. An estimated 50,000 people died by suicide. That's an increase of 2.6% over last year because people don't have hope. They're checking out. I don't want to, there's no better tomorrow that they're looking for. They're suffering in the moment and they say, I can't have it. I I don't want this anymore. I'm just going to check out. They have no hope. And it was God's intention all along to take the gospel message to all of us, to everyone in every nation so that they can have hope and abound in hope, peace and joy in believing. We know where they can find hope, don't we? We know his name is Jesus He has a confident expectation that God is going to keep all of his promises. He showed us. We know, and God is sending us out in the midst of the unbelievers, first of all, to praise him. And then those who come to faith, we praise him together so that soon all the nations are praising the Lord. And the universal sign of that is the millennial kingdom where peace and joy reigns. And there's a universal praise of God because it was God's intention all along to bless the nations That was his promise. And he fulfilled it in Christ. Let's pray. Father, we thank you. We thank you that you have made promises and you have kept every one of them. And the ones that are still open, you will keep. We believe that. We trust you because your word is trustworthy. You have proven yourself that you will never lie. You're a God who cannot lie. And what you say is true and it will come to pass. And the truth is your intention from the very beginning, even in the promise that was made to Adam and Eve, that Satan may bruise his heel, but the the Messiah would crush his head and restore what what the couple lost in the garden. That was the promise made back then to Adam and Eve. And we see it fulfilled in the Messiah who came through the Jewish people, but not just for the Jewish people, Father. You said he came for us all. And every one of us here today who is a Gentile thanks you to give us this great hope and peace and joy in believing. Oh, Father, we pray for those around us that don't know you, that don't have this hope, that think maybe checking out is a better idea than suffering. Oh, God, please let us be the, the, the avenue, the instrument by which you use to bring hope to these people because you're the one who keeps your promises and that gives us a confident expectation. Oh, Father, 
glorify yourself among the nations. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.